what pops up a beer or a cold libation Let me tell you how I wrote this little theme I went and took a call from brother Jason And he tells me that he has a little dream He says he needs a backwards intro to begin his podcast And I ask him what you got He said I'll start off with some talking And some moody clips of popcorn fighting Fantasy explorations and some groundness exploitation Kickstarts that I'm watching and some blind unboxing Full month horror movie marathon Sometimes I'll let the dogs come on Contest and of course you know it's all about games I said slow down let's just start with the name It's the Nerds RPG Variety Podcast With the other Jason Welcome back to Nerds RPG Variety Cast. I'm your host Jason. This is our scheduled listener call-in episode, but because he's back from a site survey, I have Joe Richter the host of RichterCon 2020X on as a special guest to talk about that can that can upcoming convention. Joe, how are you doing today? I'm doing all right, Jason. It's it's about nine in the morning, cracking my second beer of the day. You know, it's a it's it's a good Sunday. It's a good yeah, Sunday. Yeah, good life. Yeah, excellent, excellent. So how'd the site survey go for RichterCon 2020X? It was amazing. It was it was amazing. I while I was down there, I was envisioning all 50 of us packed into my mom's house, and it, it made me really happy. <laughs> that is awesome. That is awesome. Speaking of, of RichterCon, I don't know if you, I know you've, you're a busy guy. You, you've been running around getting ready for the convention and putting out almost daily episodes yourself. I know. So I don't know if you've had a chance to hear, but we had a, a concerned caller. Hmm. or a concerned person call and ask a question about the convention that I played last episode. Did, did you by chance hear that question? I, I don't, I don't think so, man. I'm glad I'm here. Oh, okay. Well, hold on. Is I dump things here in the studio. My studio is a little bit messy here. What, what I will do, because I was not at all prepared to play this call <laughs> is I will find this call and play it for I, I thought we were doing a bit no this, i'm no this is we we don't do bits on my show come on this is all serious stuff um, it's goddamn right sorry i'll get my head in the game so what we'll do so the listeners don't have to hear hear me look for a call is you are going to tell me about autumn yeah fired it so yeah. i'll let you um do that okay um yeah, so in my last episode that I put out, you asked me you asked me about Autumn and if people have a problem with Autumn and if you heard that on my podcast. And there's a there's a good chance you heard me talking about that on my podcast. Um, I do talk to a bunch of, you know, UK folks, plus I talk to a uh, New Zealander a lot and and they don't use they don't use fall. They don't use fall. And I, 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 I can vaguely imagine or not imagine, but remember getting chastised for using fall instead of autumn in a conversation for sure. So there is a good chance I did talk about that on my show. So no, you are not losing your mind. Do, do you remember what the issue was with, with the term? I think it's cause it was too, I think part of the problem was it's too literal, right? Like it's the leaves are falling. So you call it fall. I think 
it was like a dumbed down version of autumn oh interesting if, if any listeners have any thoughts on that please call and enlighten us i so i found this this request it's about senior discounts so i'm going to play it i'm, I'm going to play the message and, and because i'm doing this off the cuff i'm going to play it off my phone and hold it up to my microphone so hopefully you and the listeners will hear this <laughs> gorilla podcasting is best absolutely yes this is Graydon hawk of the greater grognards old guard gaming society uh, inquiring about Victor con uh, our membership would love to attend in full but we need some assurances that cosplayers will be kept out of the main venues and in their own segregated area our members are very sensitive to such things as uh the appearance of dragonborn or tabaxi or uh any type of character claiming to be a warlock associated with dungeons and dragons and a number of our members are quite older and the shock of such things might induce a stroke or a heart attack or some bit of apoplexy so we we just need to know that we will not have to be exposed to such important ideas and if that's the case we will be more than happy to attend thank you any any thoughts on that that is a great great question uh i want the people out there to know that richtercon 2020x will be fully accessible to all people uh, we are very senior friendly. We hope lots of people get lots of strokes, uh, not the bad kinds. And yeah, we will do our best to put the sexy cosplayers around where, you know, the more grognardy people, it'll be great. It'll, we'll keep the dragons on one side, the sexy cosplayers on the other side. I'll be in the middle because I'll be doing both. Uh, but either way, we are fully, fully senior accessible. We, we, we strive for that at RichterCon 2020X. Excellent. Glad to hear that. Now, now that we've got that out of the way, and you, you've given us the update on RichterCon 2020X, you, you know, I've got an idea, and I, this just came to me, but you're here, and, and I'm doing my, about to record my regular listener call-in episode. Do, do you want to join me in responding as I open my mail back up? Dude, that sounds awesome, man. Okay, great. Th- this will be fun. So let's open up the mailbag. Here we go. I'm, I'll play it. And, and as we talked about, if, if you have any comments, feel free to hop in. I'll just raise, I'll, I'll raise my hand. That, that'll work. That'll work. So, so without further ado, let's open the mailbag. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Well, maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's scream is coming from inside the house. Okay, so now I have a question about Collins on Collins. What happens if Colin Green of Spike Pit calls in about a Colin, is that a Colin Colin? And then if Colin Green calls in to a Colin show about a Colin show, is that a Colin Colin Colin? Would you have a whole show of Colin Green calling you about Collins about Collins? So you should have an entire Collins Colin Collins episode? I mean how deep does the rabbit hole go, man? How deep does it go? Okay, so now sorry about that. Um, yeah. So what do you think? 
I, I think it's Collins all the way down, man. I, I agree. I, it doesn't matter. I, I love Colin to death. In fact, I talked to him yesterday and Shut up. Uh, he's yeah. doing well. Oh, it, well, I texted back and message back and forth with him yesterday. Oh, he's doing well. And um, yeah, yeah, he's doing his teaching thing, you know, going through the teaching school thing and that's all working out well. He says his, he, he's doing good. He's happy. He's enjoying it, which is awesome. Nice. And um, yeah, but, but if Colin calls, then definitely it goes with Colin. It's about the Collins. So yeah. I, I think it's pretty straightforward. Um, B- BJ had, of course, that was BJ, the Arcane Alias podcast. And he does have another thing where he actually corrects me or, or, or calls me out on something. So I'm going to play that and then I'll respond to that. Mm. I was talking about Morton Downey Jr., who's in Predator 2. And he, he was a shock jock ho- um, talk show host. He was kind of around. I, I want to say he was around before Jerry Springer and all that. This is from a you know, little local show you know, back in the nineties in New York, in the eighties, nineties. So about, let me play this. Yeah. Hey, Jason, did Morton Daddy Jr. get hit in the face by a neo-Nazi? Or are you thinking of Geraldo Rivera? Cause I think that happened to him as well. Anyway, now I'm confused. That's a fair question there, BJ. And I conflated two different things. You're right. Geraldo is the one that was hit in the face and it broke his nose by the chair with the fight with the neo-Nazis. But Morton Downey Jr. did have a neo-Nazi incident. In April 1989, he said that he was attacked, he claimed, he made the allegation that he was attacked by neo-Nazis in a San Francisco International Airport restroom. He said they painted a swastika on his face and tried to shave his head. There were some inconsistencies in account, you know, in his account, and the swastika kind of was painted in reverse, which mean either he did it in a mirror or some really the neo-nazis are really dumb which neo-nazis are pretty dumb so that's possible too um and the and the police couldn't find um supportive evidence of this and many felt this was a hoax but i kind of conflated those two instances in my mind so it's a good call that was Gerardo that got hit in the nose with the chair so but you say you do remember morton downey jr he was um one of the original shock jocks yeah i remember him for sure you got to stop confusing people dude (laughs) I know I'm bad about that. Wait till you hear, um, who was I? Oh, I, so little aside, I just recently recorded, I don't know if you remember, but Rob over down in the heap and I did a episode where we talked about the Dracula films. I remember we just recently recorded an episode on the Frank on Frankenstein, 1931, the original Frankenstein, great film. And, cool. But we kept mixing names up throughout like like one of us would use the actor's name the other would use the character's name and because victor frankenstein you know the man in that in that movie is called henry frankenstein we kept intermixing those names and there's another character named victor so talk about confusing people that episode while it's a great episode it's not out yet rob will release it here you know at some point maybe in a week or so but um, but yeah that's going to unfortunately be a little confused if you're familiar with the movie you'll know exactly what we're talking about but if you haven't seen 31's Frankenstein, I, I highly recommend you go see it. it. It's only a little over an hour long. It's a short movie. Great. But we might confuse you a little bit with <laughs> where we jump around with the names. So. Nice. I'm excited for that. When you say 31 Frankenstein, you mean 1931? That's what Yeah, cor- correct. Yeah, 90 years ago. That movie came out 90 years ago. And it's, Damn. It's still a great movie. It really, there's some modern, or not modern, any, but there's some more modern techniques in that movie than some other films. And I think the pacing and all still works with that movie pretty well. Sweet, um, man. Yeah. So, but anyway, I I don't want to steal the thunder of that podcast, but yeah. 
It that's yeah, on the horizon. People watch it. That movie is it on YouTube? <sighs> there are clips on YouTube. You, I don't think it's streaming anywhere for free. Okay. I haven't okay. seen anywhere it's free streaming. I think you might have to actually pay for it. Um, Not gonna happen. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow, the next call is from someone well known to you, and this is Daniel Norton of Bandits Keep podcast YouTube channel and actual play YouTube channel. Maybe someday, if he gets a blog out there, he will have media empire status like Taylor of Clerks or Ringmail. But Daniel hasn't quite achieved that yet. But he does have a comment that I'd like to play. Nice. I love that, dude. So I'm just going to call in and say that I think Paul uh, should uh, start his own podcast. Um, I think that what he's saying is really interesting. And partially because, I don't know, maybe four years ago when I first got back in RPGs, I was in the same spot. I played all these different kinds of games, Fate, this and that, Benny games. I played a lot of different games, like something like, well, I think I said this before, I did the week of RPGs where I played a different, played or ran, mostly ran, a different RPG every week for a year. Um, And uh, so I think it's super interesting. I wish I had had a podcast then talking about it because I so many of them have mixed together into just the same mush. So, Paul, if you're listening, you should definitely uh, talk about this kind of stuff uh, on a podcast, because I would certainly listen. I second yeah. that. Yeah. I second that. Definitely. Paul, you remember, could Paul called in, he did that reading from Snow Crash. Yeah, yeah, and you guys had that interview. Yeah, great. yeah. Yeah, Paul's a, a smart guy, and he, he's got a lot of experience in different things. I, I think he could bring a lot, you know, wh- whether it's getting on other people's shows like he's been calling in or if he wants to do his own. And, and folks, if you don't feel you can, you want to sustain a long-term podcast, you could even put out like four episodes, like a miniseries, and, and just do a peri- you know, something like that, a periodic thing. Just because you're doing a podcast doesn't mean it's got to be weekly or daily or anything like that. Absolutely not. That's the beauty of podcasting. You just do it whenever you want. It's great. Right, exactly. So, yeah, Paul, we'd love to hear more. Um, These next couple calls go together. Um, Taylor of the Cleric Square Ringmail Media Empire has a response to Daniel, who doesn't quite have a media empire with Bandit's Keep. And so Daniel had mentioned a character from the 80s, Punky Brewster. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so Taylor is going to respond to that. And then Daniel because I reached out to him before this episode, Daniel has a response to Taylor. Oh, I'm, I'm excited for this. Yep. So, and, and then, well, we'll play those two and then we'll play another one, Daniel, but let's play these two first. Yeah. Yeah. Punky Brewster. What's that? Is that, is that related to like the ice cream or I want to say I saw a Brewster ice cream at the, the grocery. Oh no, no, no. Oh, I know. I'll bet it's one of those things you guys used to listen to, like like maybe on your eight track players, you know, back in the day, or or got the 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 TV, got the rabbit ear antenna kind of positioned just right, and got to watch the show. It was either that or President Kennedy. Uh, okay, yeah, I think I got it now. I love hanging out with you old school guys. I learn something new every day. Model T's, trains. Punky Brewster is a 1984 grim, dark show about a young girl abandoned by her family. Her mother leaves her at the Chicago shopping center. She has to find a way to survive on her own until she meets up with some other rebels from society. And they form a gang. Fenster Hall tries to keep her in, but she's able to break free. 
Punky Brewster knows that if you ever wear two socks that are the same color, you're just giving into the man. Punky Brewster, the first and only punk. Yep. I, I fully, I fully support that. I fully, I say, get out of here, Taylor. Get out of here. Go watch some Punky Brewster. That's Punky right. Brewster rules. Yeah, it's got to be on YouTube somewhere. Um, it, for sure. Okay, but Daniel's not done talking about the man. This next, he's talking about Cyberpunk 2020 and the fact it's an alternate history where there isn't emails, we know it, and things like that. So that's right, the subject of his next call. That's fine. We don't have to talk about Punky Brewster anymore. That's cool. Oh, we can keep talking about Punky Brewster if you want. Yeah, I've only cool. got like 50 more minutes of calls. Oh, let's, but, go, yeah. let's go, let's go, let's go. <laughs> oh, yeah, I think it's pretty cool there's no email. Actually. I was just trying to put together how net runners work with that because clearly there's a net, right? So, but um, no, I think that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, I'm down. I mean, you know, it's not normally. I'm not a beer and pretzels uh, player, I guess. I'm more like a whiskey and cigar player. So I rarely play a character that just wails down with a machine gun and just starts shutting people down. But hey, if that's the game, that's the game. And uh, my uh, exotic dancer, Daisy, will uh, do the best she can to uh, survive in a world, a world that maybe she's not made to survive in. But she's been forced to by the man. You know what makes daisies grow? Blood. Rain. There you go. <laughs> Goddamn rain makes daisies grow, man. But I think there is emails in Cyberpunk 2020. Like yeah, just not like on your phone and right, and, like, right. Just, there are yeah. there are basically there are like data terminals, kind of like pay phones used to be in the eighties, but they're data terminals now, and you can access email and stuff um, in cyber in in Night City. I think that's a thing. There's well, the just, da- there are data terminals there, but they're not. You don't. They're more like searching the web, but they're not. Right, like email isn't there because you use fax machines and you fax. You have to fax messages and letters back and forth. Are you are you sure there's no email in Night City? Yeah, man. All fax machines. Well, well, well. Let's um. I don't want to talk past you, so let's put a pin in this until I can research it. Let's put a pin in this one. God damn it. We'll we'll we'll, co- we'll come back to this um, on Wednesday. Okay. My Wednesday show. But speaking of my shows and mm-hmm. what I've been doing lately, mm-hmm. there's one disgruntled person. And so I'm, I'm going to ask you to to bear with this because this disgruntled person is called in and and immediately after that, I've recorded something to help solve their soul. Cool. So th- this might be a good time to get another beer or to, you, you know, toke up or something. I don't know. Hold on. I'll, I'll play this message. Hey, Jason. Just very disappointed that you do not give recaps of ETU or T2K. I know we love these acronym, acronyms, uh, East Texas University by Savage Worlds and Twilight 2000 4th Edition um, by Free League. I like hearing your recaps. They're fun. They're different than mine. I know you defaulted to go and maybe to get some more play for my podcast, but your podcast, just and any player podcast for that matter, I really like to enjoy not just to stroke my ego, but uh, because I like hearing what you all pick up from the game, and it's almost like a good way of feedback. 
for me as a GM to see if I uh, did my job. So uh, please, recaps, please. I'm, it is I, the necromancer, Idris Khan, disciple of the great demon Azi Dahaka, the sultan of sand, storms, and waste. I am here to tell you of a tale that I, Idris Khan, have taken amongst some unworthy traveling companions. You may remember last time over at the Judges podcast, the presentation of the geomologist, how we had met I... Idris Khan, wandering through the deserts, spreading desolation and waste, so sand covers the entire world. I encountered a familiar group of Bedouins as I headed towards a peak that my patron had demanded I destroy the altar on top of. This tale has already been told, as I have said, on Judge Carl's podcast, Presentation of the Geomologist. After through my mighty abilities, we destroyed this altar that offended my patron. I decided to accompany my newfound traveling companions on a further adventure. Yes, I did. So these traveling companions, who are they? There is Ardath. I will refer to him as I do in my head. He <laughs> is Arnie. He is a burly fighter type who is not too smart. In fact, he has taken up a cursed sword knowing it is cursed. It is a sword of the Moon Kings and is a pale, ghostly type sword that is quite effective until you show cowardliness or weakness in using it. Also, there's Otto the Dwarf, who I refer to as I refer into my head as Otto. <laughs> Otto does not have to take care of his camel. Indeed, I tasted its dung and could tell the camel was not maintained properly. I tried to help Otto in this, but as many dwarves, he was quite stubborn in not wanting to care for the beast. The last companion is a cleric of the god of puzzles. And, and this priest, although I think of him as Bernadette in my mind, I will call him Bernie for this podcast. So, Bernie and his companions, before I met them, had found this portal. In fact, they found a number of portals, but they decided they would go through the blue portal. And this was before I showed up and in, entreated them into assisting me in destroy. well, in, into observing as I destroyed the altar of my patron's rival. So, a, as a boon to them, because I was feeling generous, I decided to accompany them on this journey. I should have thought twice about this because my great patron, the Demon Sultan, has shown me disfavor ever since I followed them on this. We went through a blue portal. We appeared in a wooded land, vast, but without mammals or birds, very odd. All of a sudden we were beset on by these plant creatures Using my amazing magic, I enlarged the stupid fighter Arnie and 
in his enlarged state. And, and as I enlarge him, you will be interested to know what this looked like. So I touched Arnie and said the mystic words, the, the mystic words of doom. He then sh- de-aged and shrunk down and to be a mere infant and then regrew, but he kept growing and stopped one and a half times his normal size. And in this enlarged state, he cut swaths through these plant creatures, which had some semblance of intelligence as they were using bows as well as hand weapons. Luckily, Judge Carl dislikes the dwarf and has adjusted this thing called VTT to roll unfairly on the dwarf. So what happens is he says, I'm going to pick a random player. Oh, it's the dwarf. They're going to attack a random player. Oh, it's the dwarf. And the dwarf takes the majority of the damage. This happened the last session we played as well. So we fought these plant things and and I used my amazing abilities to help fight them. But my patron showed his distaste because I lost the ability to cast Scorching Ray but I did use color spray to great effect. So after vanishing the foes, mainly through my amazing magic, and and not at all because the priest was unfairly allowed to use, effectively Judge Carl has said that anything that's not natural, the priest is allowed to turn. So plant creatures, unnatural, he can turn them. Undead, unnatural, he can turn them. Pretty much anything unnatural, the priest can use his amazing turning abilities. But he was able to use those to help support my amazing magic, and we defeated these plant creatures. Then I decided, we, we had finished fighting the plant creatures. We decided where to go to from here. Well, I have the knowledge of a spell that allows me to fly. So I said, let me fly above the trees and see what the surrounding area. But my patron, showing his disfavor, for following this priest of puzzles disallowed and took that spell away from me for the rest of the day. At this point, this priest shimmied up the tree and saw that there was a castle in the distance. We go to this castle. It is overgrown. The water, the moat around it is murky. The statues in front of this castle say we should leave. I recommend we leave, but we don't. And we are in count, we're, we're attacked by a creature. Actually, the dwarf is attacked because the judge always picks the dwarf to be attacked. And the dwarf was attacked through my amazing archery skills. We fought off the creature attack and the dwarf killed it. And, but we decided to try, and then this priest who's, who's got a puzzles favors him in this land, allowed him the ability to detect magic. And he saw there was a hidden trap a thunder and lightning trap across the, the drawbridge into the castle. So we tried to defuse this. It was beyond my skill in this realm because my patron has left me. So the fighter, the foolish fighters I previously stated, try to carve the, these runes off the statues, but he edged a little too close and was struck by this trap. He survived it, and the door opened, the the door to the castle opened, and plant things came out, scores of them. I again enlarged him because I am a helpful type person, and 
He again cut swaths through them. I pulled out my long sword and engaged. The cleric also pulling out a bladed weapon engaged, and we cut down a few of these ourselves. The, for once, the, the judge decided to punish someone other than the dwarf, and as Arnie was striding across the drawbridge, a trap triggered, throwing him into the moat. At this point, the frogs and toads in the moat were stirred up, and these carnivorous amphibians swam towards Arnie. He was able to get out of the water, but then these creatures started feasting on the plant men that were knocked into the water. We fought our way across the bridge, primarily due to my bravery, and we ended up in the castle. But before this, because of G Judge Carl's hatred of dwarves, he managed to set the dice up to roll multiple criticals in one strike upon the dwarf, felling him. But the priest, again, who's got a puzzles, favors him, was able to resurrect this dwarf, and he, he survived being felled by a strike to the head, at which point we all ushered into the castle and the session ended. There were many critical roles, in fact, and failures. In fact, one of the critical strikes upon me by Plant Man was deflected expertly by me with my longbow, shattering it. But I picked up one of their short bows and kept up the fight because Idris Khan will not be dissuaded by mere fungi. I will report again next time we play. But remember, do not follow false patrons. Do not go down the bad path. Chaos is the only way. Big time props, dude. Doing a session recap in character for a whole session, that's impressive. That's impressive, yep. Jason. Nice work, man. That was fun. I, I do want to I do want to defend Carl a little bit in terms of him hating a character and setting up the dice to always <laughs> roll to attack. In in my home game, my friend Woody, the guy who actually moved away, anytime we were sitting there and it was like, okay, I'm rolling a D4 to see who the monster attacks. Not one time out of four, but three times out of four, it would be him. Like every time the dice were like, yep, we're, we're hitting Woody. And it just got to the point where they're like, just don't even roll. And I'd roll and it'd be him again. So <laughs> it happens, man. Sometimes the dice gods hate a player at your table. And yeah, I don't know. Have you ever had that happen? Well, yeah, the bigger problem. Can, can I, it, am I unmuted? Yeah. Okay, cool. The the bigger problem I see, just roll 20's algorithm, I don't think is is very I, I think their their algorithm's broken. Because numerous not. times you'll see like the same roll. Yeah. Like, like 20, 20, 20 or one one one. And you, you know, so I think the algorithm's just kind of screwy. But yeah, yeah. I mean it, it, it can definitely happen where where the dice gods are against a player. You know, I recently played in and my son was able to play in a game of decks mm -hmm. by Darren Green, also nice. known as Arfed. He's called into numerous shows, and yep. you, like I say, you can see him on forums as Arfed. But he's got a game; it's an RPG, but you use a deck of cards instead of dice. And because the way that game works, you can count your cards. Mm -hmm. You have a; it's still random, but you have some control over it because you choose when you reshuffle your deck normally. 
Right. There may be effects that make you reshuffle, but normally you can choose. So you can kind of choose, well, a lot of my good cards are out. I should reshuffle or or a lot of my bad cards are out. So I don't want to reshuffle because I still have the high numbers coming. Mm -hmm. So so it's kind of interesting because while it still has a random element, you have a little more control over it, you know, but I guess that, well, we have one more call and and then we're going to get into talks about narrative mechanics. And I guess this is a good segue to that because the idea of being able to reshuffle your deck or the randomness of dice oh. narrative mechanics to a large degree, at least player facing narrative mechanics like rerolls are a way to try to overcome the randomness of dice mm-hmm. and, and control the story in an unfair and evil way. So, <laughs> so I think we should, but, but I've, I have one call before we go to that. And this is from a gentleman named Spencer, also known as free thrall from keep off oh. the borderland. I love that guy. And and basically what he's going to do is is prove that that he did get my point when I was talking about GM metacurrency. Okay. And and um and speak great words of wisdom. So I'm going to play Spencer's call now. Let's hear it. Hey Jason, Spencer here. I just wanted to say great job uh wrangling the debacle there. I was listening to my message and heard myself say that narrative mechanisms weren't necessary i was speaking in the context of how you'd intended to frame the discussion that um playing more narrative games might inform how you play other games might make playing other games a richer experience but to actually pull those rules across and try and implement them uh, may not necessarily be such a great idea and obviously narrative mechanisms are necessary in more narrative games games which are built on those precepts anyway that's all i wanted to say take care bye he's right and that's all i was saying too was i wasn't ever trying to say we should take a game that has meta currency and take the meta currency out of the game i certainly never thought that's what you were saying yeah, I was saying that we could learn things and apply it to other games. Right, right, right. Apply right. the ideas, not necessarily apply the meta currency to the other games, but just apply. Like, so we're, you know, a couple of podcasters now. Spencer in his most recent episode talks about the newest edition of Best Left Buried. Mm-hmm. Talks about how the whole game is designed around making dungeon delving like a horror experience. Like you should be scared to go down there and traumatized, and how to play up the horror of dungeons. Mm-hmm. I think you can take the ideas of that game. Not the mechanics, but the ideas of the dungeon being a horrible, scary place. And you can import that into other games. You can import that into Pathfinder just sure. by the way you describe the dungeon and, and the way you do things. So I don't think you need the mechanical bits from Best Left Buried to make dungeons and Pathfinder scary. But I think you could read that game and it could give you ideas and inspiration to make Pathfinder scary. Absolutely. Yeah, totally, man. Yeah. Did- that- didn't people, some folks on Anchor, hate Best Left Buried? Wasn't there a bunch of talk when that first game came out, when the first edition came out? There was, and Spencer said that they fixed some of that. So I ran it, and some other people ran it. Um, Pete Jones is in the game I ran, and, and Pete Jones and I might have been the Pete Jones of uh, Dragons Are Real podcast. And you yeah, I couldn't remember. Who, I, Both I, of us kind of put it down a little bit. because we because well, So the problem was... I forget the author's name, but the company is Soul Muppet Games. Mm-hmm. And he had posted on social media, he had acknowledged the idea that 
they put that game out without fully play testing it with the idea they would sort the things out after it was released and basically let the players play test it as a beta game. At which point I stopped buying anything from Soul Muppet Publishing. That, that but, seems like a bad strategy. Well, but maybe they fixed it in the new edition. I don't know. I didn't buy the new edition, but yeah. you know, you can't count releasing your game as your play test. I, but you know what? That that's a strategy. You like video games? Look at video games these days. <laughs> with and I know neither of us are probably real big video game players, yeah, but we oh, know oh. people who play video games. And, I do. Yeah. And video games these days have so many patches and fixes. It seems like they're almost releases beta versions of the game, and they let players find the bugs to and right, then they put patches out. A lot longer to <laughs> is this a bad thing to say? It probably takes longer to make a video game than it does to make a role playing game. Oh, a hundred percent. It's got to right. Okay. Yeah. yeah, but well, but look at what was that? What was it? Um, Romance in a Perilous Land, the, right. the Black Act right. thing that you ran, yeah, and that was, was the bad. same way. We, Romance and Perilous Lands. Yeah, we, we you ran one session, with, and Dave Aldrich and I, and, and who yep. else was it? Colin was in that I game? I think it was Colin Green. I feel like it was Colin Green. Yeah, I think so, too. And, yeah. and we were in that game, and yep. we broke some of the mechanics, like, in one session. Like, the grappling mechanic was, like, kind of wonky. I think it was the grappling mechanics and kind of wonky. I'm still not convinced that we were 100% running it right. I don't know. But I, yeah, I don't think it, it could have been written clearer at least. Right. Right. Yeah. But you know, this is a point that Daniel talks about somewhere. I forget where, if this is on his YouTube or in a podcast episode or calling somewhere, but I think Daniel makes a great point that there might've been on discord actually, now that I think about it, but Daniel said, and I'm paraphrasing, but he wishes more games had more rules, examples, play, actual play examples in the rules. It's because he was talking smack about OSC for saying, just go to YouTube and watch YouTube videos. And right. which I, I mean, is fair because if you put, yeah, people can go watch YouTube videos, but if you put actual play examples in books, I think those actual play examples help you understand the creator's intent of how the rules are supposed to work more than anything else. Yeah. I don't want little stories like, you know, White Wolf would ha have like all these stories in the games yeah. and stuff. I don't want stories in my games. I want play examples so yeah. I can see how you want the rules to work. Yeah, totally. Totally. Sometimes, you know, fiction in games gets a lot of shit. Uh, there's some dope fiction in Cyberpunk 2020. Yeah, that's true. Exception. But gets you into the mood. Like, it, it, it's got its place, man. Everyone hates on it. It's, it's all right. It's not the worst thing. It doesn't make me mad. Um, but but I wish they would put I, I wish games that have more examples of play. Yeah, because that way you can understand what what the, how they want mechanics to work. I agree. I agree with that for sure. Awesome. Now, I mentioned to you. Um, we're we're going to listen to all these calls mm -hmm. and and this next caller is going to be kind of a stranger to you. But okay. but I ask you just to power through it. and Do your best. Um, so so here we go. Yo, Jason, just got back home from my trip. Amazing trip. One of the hardest things I've ever done in my life is listen to a bunch of podcasts and not been able to call in. <laughs> not just kidding. But I feel bad about missing your question, not answering it right. So let me answer it. Yes. Not only do I think people should take the lessons from narrative games into games without those mechanics, I think it's imperative why do I think that? Because those other games already have GM meta currency. Oh. 
Uh-oh. Where am I going GM with this? Fiat is unlimited GM meta currency. The way people interpret it is it lets the GM do whatever they want, whenever they want. Like you were saying, GMs don't need to follow the same rules as the players. They're able to change the narrative whenever they want. It is unlimited GM meta currency. Therefore, those other games with those explicit, not hidden GM meta currency that actually puts it on the table give a GM the ideas of the right ways to use GM fiat. So, so because there is a hidden, unlimited GM meta currency in those games where the meta currency for the GM is not explicitly stated, I think it is really important for Dungeon Masters to read those other games so they learn how to use that properly. I, you know, I agree with Arland. I think that the GM should have to play by the rules, same rules as the players. And you say they shouldn't, and that's cool, but why not? Why shouldn't Dungeon Masters have to play by the same rules? And it's not just you. I'm not singling you out, Jason. I hear this from a lot of people. Okay, I'm going to stop right here because you're going to talk a little bit more about that. And I think that's a separate point. So let's talk about this idea of GM, GM Fiat is unlimited meta currency you're not wrong and and actually up you know with that that idea i I agree with you and i think we're on the same page here that the games with explicit gm meta currency are good learning are good points for gms to learn how to use their power you you know and that recent game of dcc with carl rodriguez of the presentation of the gm podcast he and he um you know would willy-nilly say well, I'm not sure where this is in the rules, but I'm just going to do it this way. And and I'm not picking on Carl's bad GM. He was keeping the session going and he was making rulings that make sense. You know, it's like, well, let's not waste a lot of time looking this up. Let's just do this for the session. And and, and I'm not against that at all. But I, I know some people are like, well, if it's in the rules, GM has to follow the rules. But if if you're not doing something crazy and you're not doing something that's really penalizing the players, but you're keeping the session going, does it really matter? if a mechanic is roll against your decks or do a save and throw against paralyzation or, you know what I mean? Just pick something and move, move and keep going. And, and Carl does that well, but that's GM Fiat, right? Cause you're not following the, the rules written in the book. And, if, right. you, you know, but, but I think that's acceptable use of that GM power. Um, but how do you learn to apply those kind of things? And yeah, reading all these other books, don't hurt. Now, Daniel's got some thoughts on that later on that we'll come to, but, but, but I just did want to comment on that section. Cause I think we're, we're going to deviate a, a little bit here now on, on the rest of your call. Well, but, yeah, but, but before we do, so, um, cause in those examples with Carl, he's trying to stick to the spirit of it. He's trying to play by the same right. rules, right? Yep. Yep. But what you were saying is that the DMs don't have to play by the same, shouldn't have to play by the same rules as a player. Right. And that's what your next calls are going to, are going to go into. Right. Okay. 
Yeah, okay. so let's hear those and, and then we'll, we'll yeah, see if I have a defense or not or if I um, admit I was wrong. So big cliffhanger here, but let's hear the rest of Joe's calls. Especially, although not exclusively, in the old school gaming community that GM should be these extra powerful players that they should have, you know, they should get to play by different rules. My question is why? Why should they? To me, there is a lot, a lot of ego wrapped up in that. And that a lot of that springs from Gary Gygax, who from everything I've read and seen and stuff had a very big ego and imparted that into the idea of what it is to be a dungeon master. And honestly, I think we've moved past that now. I don't think we need that ego trapped up in the game where one person is better than the other people at the table. One person has more power than the other people at the table. And again, Jason, I am I am not singling you out. I'm not saying you're an egomaniac or that GMs that think this way are egomaniacs. I'm just saying there is ego wrapped up in it. There, I mean, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. So, yeah, my question, because it is a meta currency, you, you can, I, it is. It's just not one that's spelled out. But so when people say, no, I don't want meta currency in my game, but yes, GM Fiat is king. That's, that's hypocritical. That's they're, they're contradicting themselves. <laughs> they're saying the opposite things. They're saying, I don't want meta currency in my game, except for the dungeon master to have unlimited unchecked meta currency. But why, 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 why peace out. I think those are great calls. I I don't have an on-the-spot answer for you because depending how you apply it, it could definitely be unfair and, and egocentric and, and controlling and and all that. I think the key to it is the, the GM has to – oh, you know what? I, I don't know if I still have it. Let me look. The, the key to it is something that Ken St. Andre wrote in the second fantasy role-playing game, Tunnels and Trolls. And I will see if I can find that quote while I'm talking. But what I'm going to do for you, Joe, uh-huh. is I will go back and on, and I will research what Gary Gygax has said. And in the first edition Dungeon Master Guide and some other things. And on Wednesday, I, I will I will revisit the subject because okay. I don't have I don't have a, a good answer for you right now because you're right. At the moment, yeah, it does seem unfair, right? So, but I think the key is that you don't have, I think this is where not playing a scenario helps or not playing a scripted out thing and not having plot armor for certain characters and all that. Because if you don't have darlings in your NPCs, if you're not giving your NPCs plot armor, you're not tempted to break the rules to save an NPC. And you're not tempted to use a quantum ogre to force in this encounter that you've designed right i I think if you're not if you're running more an improvisational game you're less likely to abuse your power but ultimately so here's the sentence here's the what ken st andre said let's hear what he said and this is from tunnels and trolls like say Mm -hmm. early fantasy role-playing game but he said this gm advice 
If you're too arbitrary and overly whimsical, players will get frustrated and disgusted and stop playing. Imagination, ingenuity, and a fair sense of justice and logic are essential to a good GM. And I think if he's right, if you if you follow that kind of thinking and you're not thinking my plot is the most important thing, I, I think you could still do a good job using that unlimited GM fiat. Absolutely. I, absolutely. I wasn't denying that. I'm, I'm merely stating that GM fiat is meta currency already that exists in these games. Yeah. I'm interested to see what Daniel and Taylor and all have to say with that, but I don't, I, I, I can't, I can't really just, I, I might dispute the, the word meta currency just because the idea of meta currency is something you spend. So, but I know what you're saying. I see what you're getting at. Yeah. Yeah. The idea you're getting at, I can't disagree with. Yeah. I I don't just, we can quibble over words, but, but, but I, but the, yeah, 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 exactly. But but when we look at the, the, the principle you're talking about, I don't, I I can't disagree with the principle you're talking about. It's all about principles, dude. Yeah. So principles are important. I mean, you know, somebody has got to keep that high school in check. Right, and, <laughs> yeah, right, man. Yeah, that's the principle. Otherwise, it's just Breakfast Club all the time, and we can't have right. that. Not at all, man. Get so, to these calls, man. Yeah, speaking of Breakfast Club, let's go to Daniel Norton because he has some thoughts for you, Joe. Oh shoot. Okay, so uh, I think I'm responding to Joe. Those aren't narrative mechanics that change the narrative or that change the narrative. They're narrative narrative mechanics that push the narrative forward. Just like I stabbed them with my sword, they die. You didn't change the narrative because they were alive one second and dead the next. I mean, you changed it, but you forwarded it. And I think that's different than I fail my saving throw. Now I get to use this point that I have here to re-roll it. Now I succeed in my saving throw. I think, in my opinion, that's more like changing the narrative than a healing potion. I actually think that's just, or a, a, a spell. Cause again, that's something that the player has to use. It's part of the game. It's a, it's a tool in the game. It's not uh it's a tool in the game that forwards the narrative that, that can be, I mean, I'm quoting real in the world, right? A, a, healing, a healing potion is something that you hand to the, the player to drink, to be healed. Whereas, Oh no, he didn't hit me because I rerolled my die is not. And of course, as I say that, I immediately go back to the message I left earlier about in Coriolis where it is something, right? So if the narrative mechanic is set up where when you use your hero point or whatever, you still screwed up, but now you explain how you recovered and made it work, assuming that you succeeded in the second time, um, then I think that's a little different. Then that is closer to uh, to healing and stuff. So, I mean, the game is a narrative game. Everything's narrative in it. But I think the difference is, in my mind, if I'm going to categorize things, which I don't really like to do, Yes, I do. I love to categorize. Is that something like a hero point where you just re-roll and it's like that didn't happen, this did? That's much different than something in-game like running up and uh and in fact in Rob's example is perfect, right? Him using the luck point would have been, in my opinion, metacurrency narrative, whereas the person using the potion, in my opinion, was not. So at that last part, he was talking about an episode of Dan in the Heap where Rob mm-hmm. talked about in a recent game he was in that his character is basically killed, but because they were going to give him a potion right away, it was able to save him. And he felt like that almost like cheated the game because he expected his character to be dead. But, you know, Daniel saying it's a little different using a healing potion like that 
than it is rerolling a die to change the narrative. And and I agree with him. There is a little bit of a difference there. Um, so it, and that's why incorporate. Here, I'll, 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 give me one second, and yeah, I'll turn it hundred percent over you. That's why learning the lessons from these games is good to put to OSR games, but maybe not moving the mechanics over because in in the older games, just doing rerolls is going to totally it, it gives it if it's a different feel when you can do rerolls than when you can't. And Daniel's going to talk more about rerolls later in the later in the podcast, but um, and ways to do that that don't break the game that feel more OSR, but. Mm-hmm. But I think he's right. There's a difference between, oh, no, he's down. I'm going to try to pour this potion down his throat to, oh, no, he's down. I'm going to use my hero coin to reroll that attack on him. And that attack never happened. I, I think narrative, there is a difference in the flow of the game and how in your face you want meta currency to be, right? Because, yeah, it's all in your face. It's all a game, definitely. But I think when you, the more you talk about things like rerolls and no, that didn't happen in the game, the more you, you, you kind of it's that whole immersion thing, which is really nebulous and hard to talk about. But but I think there is a difference between actively manipulating the narrative and doing something to further narrative, like Daniel's saying. And, and now I'll turn it over to you. But Daniel's also talking about how there are games where it's fine because that's built into the narrative, right? Where you say your prayer, and I think that's the idea for meta currency is that you're supposed to work it into the narrative. Like with the newest edition of Cthulhu, there's a thing where you can push your roll, which lets you re-roll, but you have to explain what what the difference is, what's causing that, right? Like, I think that's the idea of all this meta currency. It's not just about a free re-roll. Like, I think you're meant to kind of talk about how it changes the narrative and not just ignore it. So... Yeah, like if you're just saying I get a reroll, this thing happened, this didn't happen, that's that's lame and boring, right? Like nobody's nobody's looking for that. But I don't think, and I'm also not talking about porting these mechanics into older games. That's silly. That wouldn't work. It, you know. Uh, but I'm just saying that meta currency in and of themselves, I think they are meant to represent that change in the narrative where it's not just all of a sudden it's state a now it's state b i think there is an intermediary point between the two okay that's yep. it. no i i agree with you and and this is where he's going to talk about power to po- power by the apocalypse games in a little bit so you might want to get an ice pack and, and put, cool yourself down but the um but the but the thing with Powered by the Apocalypse games, they really need to be run by somebody that I don't know what the referees called in those games, but MC. The MC. The MC really needs to be on the game because you need to be able to the moves and the and the way the narrative switches from player to player and all that. Mm-hmm. It should be seamless and you shouldn't talk about narrative mechanics, the, the game mechanics, right? You shouldn't in that game, you shouldn't say, I'm gonna play X move. It's you should same. describe what you're doing. The MC should be that sounds like you're doing this. Here's mm-hmm. or, yeah, he might not even you, you might not even a- outwardly say that right but but that's okay roll on this move or whatever right what? but but the key is a player shouldn't be saying i'm going to use whatever right they should be describing and what they describe should trigger whatever the, the move is that they're doing yes. but and i think the problem is like in 
some of the, not all of them. I've played power. Now I have played power by the apocalypse with some gems that are good and do it the correct way. But mm-hmm. in the past, I've also played with some that have not where you've declared your move. And I think declaring your move in power of the apocalypse is equivalent. Like what you were saying a minute ago, Oh, I re-roll and that doesn't happen instead mm-hmm. of forwarding the narrative. So the, the narrative meta currency isn't as simple as just having it in the game. You you need to wrap it around so so it doesn't interrupt. You know so so flows smoothly, right? Yeah, I've also yeah. played games with bad Dungeons and Dragons DMs before. Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, not not everybody could be Gary Gygax, Joe. You have to just right. yeah. Well, that, that's that's what we aspire to. But, right. Yeah. Just if he was first, he's the best. That's right. If you're not first, you're last. That's but, got to be right, dude. Now Daniel's going to talk. I'm going to play two more messages from Daniel, and then we're going to kind of move on to the next segment, which is talking about troop play. But these messages involve saving throws and involves, I forget, I think Spencer, this Spencer called in and asked about saving throws. And I had responded to him that yes, saving throws are kind of carry over from war games where your more powerful characters get to save. And they were basically a way to, to simulate the fiction that a more car- powerful character, you know, Conan might shrug off an attack that would kill him a lesser man, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of the the idea of saving throws. But Daniel's going to talk about that, and then he, then we're going to go into a message about the origins of meta mechanics. I got it. I'll zip it. <laughs> As usual, Spencer is very insightful. Um, yeah, saving throws are kind of a narrative mechanic, right? I did not read those books. Uh, I have this thing about reading history books that are written by people that are kind of still alive. I don't, anyways, um, I feel like every new one that comes out, the story slightly changes. But those books he's talking about, John Peterson's Playing at the World and the Elusive Shift. That's a whole other thing, but uh, they do seem like good books. Maybe I should read them. But to get back to it, because I am combining Chainmail and OD&D, I can confirm that, right, only heroes and superheroes and wizards and stuff like that get saving throws um, in Chainmail. Now, of course, at OD&D, starting with the, 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 the three little brown books, saving throws are for everyone, monsters, uh, heroes. And again, not just the PCs get them in Chainmail. I mean, both sides are PCs, I guess, right? But your, you know, the opponent does too. Anybody at that level of character gets a saving throw, just not, um, just not the the lower level soldiers and stuff. I get my phone out. You haven't finished, so I'm just going to record another one. <laughs> I think you might be correct about top secret. I'm curious if somebody else will call in, but I seem to remember uh, listening to a podcast or something again. That doesn't mean that it's true. Where they mentioned that that is uh, the earliest thing that they could hear, think of as well, the fame and fortune points, which of course. It's kind of an interesting thing because in Top Secret, you got two, right? The fame points, I think it was. Uh, you got one per level as you kind of leveled up. Uh, so all the people that do podcasts and say that levels in Top Secret didn't matter, uh, you obviously didn't read the rules. And also this fortune that the GM rolls or the, the um, admin rolls when you first make a character and you don't know what that is. And when you go to use it, you say, I want to use a fortune point. And if you want to use a fortune point and you don't have any, guess what? You're gone. So it's very interesting. Uh, mechanic, and I, I kind of like it. Of course, uh, I've said before, Top Secret was probably was definitely my favorite game back in the day. Ooh, yeah. So now, w- when he's talking about Top Secret, he's talking about the Top Secret that I mainly played, which was 1980, Whoa. the original Whoa. Top Secret. I don't remember 
if you played the original or if you played I SI. I just played SI. I am yeah, a so, pick. But yeah, I love so, it when people talk about Top Secret no matter what. So that made me happy. Yeah, so Top Secret. So I'm going to expand on this a little bit mm-hmm. j- just for the history aspect. And there's a link in the show notes for this episode Whoa. to a blog from John Peterson, the man that Daniel doesn't want to read because he writes about people that aren't dead yet. Yeah, but, but, but this talks about the history of metacurrency. So I think it applies. And um, it's at his blog, Playing at the World. But he but he talked, well, let's talk about fame and fortune points in Top Secret real mm-hmm. quickly. That was the first yeah. time TSR used these ideas. And what they, a fame and fortune points, you use them the same way. Just one of them, you got one each level. Okay. And then one of them, the GM rolled. Yeah. Then one of yeah. them, the GM rolled a secret role when you right. created the character. And however many points you had, he kept that as secret. In his record. So you might like you make a character and he might have five fortune or five points, right? And when you use all five of those points up, they're out, they're gone. Were those fortune or fame points that you that the player didn't know about? Like you're you're making me think and I don't remember. Um, okay. I, I conflate them in my head now. Sure. Um it, it seems weird that you wouldn't know how many fortune. The fortune points, have. I believe, are the ones the GM rolls, and the fame points okay. are the ones you level they need up with. Fortune in the more like magic like luck. Yeah, sense. like luck, yeah, like not luck, like yeah. your wealth and your fortune. Got it. Right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Where fame points are how famous you are. Yeah. Like okay. like James Bond. Like you watch his movies. Right. He's a quote unquote secret agent, but yeah. everybody knows who James Bond is. At least everybody in the espionage world, right? Mm-hmm. Um. So anyway, but the way those points in that game work, basically anything that took you to zero hit points, you could spend one of those points and you would, and it would be lessened where you, you'd be down to one hit point. You if you took die. it, yeah. yeah. If you had five hit points and you took a yeah. six hit point attack, sure. it would less, it, you'd only take, you know, what, four hit points and you'd be at one hit point. That's yeah, what yeah. it did. And um, so that's how they worked, but you had the one that you tracked and then the one that right. GM tracked. And if you ever called on the one the GM tracked and you were down to zero now, your luck was out. Well, yeah. You're dead. Yeah. yeah so, sense. yeah, that's cool. But just to answer Daniel's question about the earliest use, I found a, in that article I, I've linked, he talks about Space Quest and Bushido, which were by tier role playing. Now, I played Bushido, but I played it in a later iteration by Fantasy Games Unlimited, mm-hmm. which was in the early 80s. But right. In its original printing in 78 and Space Quest in 77, okay. they both allowed saving throws to be used both reactively and proactively. So you could use saving throws the way we think of them. Yeah. You have to roll your saving throw to see if you right. get hit by the lava. Or you could use them proactively. I'm going to roll my saving throw for speed to see if I can get a burst of speed and, and make that final three feet past my movement <laughs> that's awesome dude i love that yeah so it does go back at least the idea of some kind of narrative editing i guess yeah goes back to at least 77 god damn right. about it like it's a new thing yeah so i i just wanted to mention that historical part in here since yeah you asked about that okay so the next series of calls i've been kind of going back so there's another joe out there you, yep. you know him as fake Joe I do over know. at Biggest Geekus yep. podcast. He and Randy do a podcast called Biggest Geekus. And we've kind of been going back on this idea of troop play. And this all started because Jules, over, for Jules from NZ podcast. I've heard of Yeah. Yep. 
Yep. She was talking about how, and one thing I don't think, I don't know if Joe knows this, the other Joe knows this, but she talked about trying to, she had an episode where she talked about it was difficult to separate right. character yeah. knowledge when you're playing two characters that have different character knowledge. Yeah. He's trying to remember what character right. knew what, right. but I don't know. I don't think he real. I don't know if he knew that she was playing this in an actual play that was recorded to play for other people. And, and so not only do you have, normally she played those characters like different times, like you, they wouldn't be in the same session together. So when, when something weird happens, you have to play them in the same session. And then it's an actual play, which adds an additional pressure on you. Then it, it, it changes things up. So I think her situation and her, like trying to keep that knowledge separate was kind of a different case than normally where you have a bunch of characters and this week I'm playing this guy and this week I'm playing this guy. Mm-hmm. It was a little different, but yeah, that's basically right. Yeah. One of them was a podcast. One of them wasn't okay. but it was in the same world. Gotcha. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. So she had two different characters in two different parts of the world that never matched. They were never together at the same time. There were two different game groups um, and so one character had some knowledge of the world and another character had another knowledge of the world and keeping that separate. Gotcha. And, and basically this uh, biggest geek is Joe has been saying true play stupid. You should just play your most powerful character. I'm putting words in his mouth. Actually, that's not totally he, fair to him. He never but, said the part about powerful character. Well, he talked about why would, why would, if you want to play a bodyguard, you want to play a shit farmer, you can do that. But why wouldn't you play the wizard? Effectively, it's kind of what he was saying. Why not play the most powerful character? But, but I, again, I'll put words in his mouth. So that's not totally fair to Joe. And, and, and I don't want to do that. But I have a couple more calls on the, on the idea of this troop play. And, and so we're going to talk about those. And um, I thought I had calls from him on here. Wait a minute. Maybe I didn't. Oh, you know what? We're not up to troop play yet. Okay. I don't know. Cool. Well, you know, we're going to do the true play messages now because I just set all that shit up. Yep. So let's do those. Um, so this is going to open up one analogy I used was Law and Order and the idea that in the show, TV show, American TV show Law and Order, the first half of the show are the cops solving a case or I'm sorry, the cops investigating and arresting somebody. And the mm-hmm. second half are is the district attorney prosecuting that person in court. And we went back and forth. Um because BJ said, well, of course the cops know everything or the district attorney knows everything the cops know, but we all know that, you know, the cops aren't going to be super forthcoming in everything they've done. Right. Cause if you friggin' done something not really good, you're not going to tell the district attorney, Oh, I kind of bent the law to arrest this guy. Right. Can I so say something? Definitely quick hop in, hop right in. Your, your response to BJ was amazing, dude. I just that's that's all I want to say. Keep talking. Your response to BJ was amazing when you dropped all that Law and Order lore. I was just like, damn. Well, no, I mean, I I was kind of being tongue in cheek. I mean, BJ, I I understand what BJ is saying. Oh, but, dude. But to be fair, in that show, like there are scenes in that show where like yeah. the cops don't share things, and there are other scenes in there where where the you, you know the the main DA guy he, Jack he he just he like has his own agenda that he's pushing. Leave Jack alone, dude. Yeah, and, and he like crushes. You've got um, yeah, yeah. So it's and you see like the other people around him are like, "What are you doing, dude? You're crazy." <laughs> you quoted chapter and verse of Law and Order, yeah. and it was just amazing, man. That's that's all I wanted to say. Let's play these. Let's yeah, play but, these yeah, but that's a setup for these messages. So yeah. the first one is from Daniel Norton, and and then the other ones are from 
Joe from Biggest Geekus. Um, so let's go into these. Yeah. Hey, Jason. Daniel, man, let's keep calling in. Um, actually calling in to apply to the BJ uh, question. Honestly, I have never watched at least an entire episode of Law and Order. I've Ooh. walked past the TV while I was playing, though. Watch that counts. But <clears throat> what I would do, though, to make it more interesting, if I was trying to make Trick Play interesting, is what I did in one module, which is I made the first set of characters take notes, and then the second set of characters used the notes that they took as their information. That is, if they neglected to make a map or write something down, they couldn't work on that information because <laughs> that would be closer okay. to what I understand you're saying Law and Order is they're getting reports they weren't there, right? So they can't be like, oh, yeah, that you know sculpture does this. Well, if it's not in the report, they don't know that. Um, so I think if you're playing with the players that are down, I think that's totally workable. I can't remember now if I called in with this when we first started talking about trip play, but I will make it short then. There is a module that I that I read, Julian <laughs> Echoes it's called, and basically it's designed where you run through it one time with the players, allowing them to make notes and maps as they like, and then, th then you run through it a second time and with different, same players, different player characters, and they have found this book with these maps and notes and stuff. Uh, there are some like twists and changes in the module, uh, depending on how you run it. But the way I did it was I was did it during my 5e campaign and I actually ran it in an OSR game <laughs> um, and then had them make notes and stuff and then uh, they went back through it uh, in the 5e. One thing that I did to make it more interesting or more kind of uh, realistic in that sense okay. is that okay. I had them run through it in the OSR characters and then I waited like a month, month and a half before I did it again in 5e so that they kind of didn't remember everything. Okay, he cuts himself off there, but okay. but that's actually really and, and that's the way to do it. And if you have a gr a long term group, you have him go through as one group of characters, and he even changed systems on them. But you wouldn't yeah, even have to do that. That's but, funny, man. But you you set the sessions, yeah, like way apart, you Hold know, months apart, and they're like, here's this group, here's a sheaf of notes mm -hmm. that you found, you know, go go to it. Yeah. So. Okay, man. now Joe's gonna call back. From biggest geek is homework though is rough sometimes. My players yeah. never do homework. Yeah, homework is a that's a whole different subject. Yeah, let's hear um Joe's responses and then we'll we'll hop back in. Hey Jason, it's Joe. Um <clears throat> on the subject of troop play, uh there's not a problem with troop play, is just uh especially with uh our magica and how they do troop play in that game, I just don't prefer it. It's a matter of preference, not problem. Um, if you just want to have a cadre of characters you can draw from at need, that's fine. <clears throat> it solves a problem of if your character happens to die or is taken out of play some other way, you have somebody to fall back on or a character to fall back on should you need it. That's not a problem at all. On player knowledge, perspective is needed. And yeah, we're kind of talking past each other a little bit. Um, this is about what I prefer. And I'm kind of answering uh, Jules' conundrum from a kind of a perhaps overly literal point of view. If you, if you, if it's important to you and you don't, and you want to act in as purely a fashion as possible, then you play a, you play without extraneous 
knowledge. Knowledge extraneous to what your character would know. Sometimes that's hard or impossible to do. And it's not a huge deal overall. <clears throat> now, um, I'm getting cut off here, so I will call back. I don't read monster books in a game that I'm currently a player in. I don't read setting books in the same vein or, let's see, monster setting or modules. Yes. Because I don't want spoilers. Um, I would rather come in with a fresh perspective and not have any of that spoiler clutter in my head spoil the first pass through a particular adventure. So that is probably my overall perspective on player knowledge. It's kind of like a spoiler. So I think you'll, Jason, you'll understand... Uh, my perspective when when it comes to that it's not precisely the same it's the same but different man anyway take it easy talk to you later bye so i can see where he's coming from there with the with the spoiler knowledge a little bit but mm -hmm. i think again like somebody called in one of the previous episodes when you're a gm you do this anyway right because mm -hmm. you had to separate npc knowledge Right. Mother NPCs. But I mean, Joe's got an interesting point about the idea when you're playing in a game, like say you're going to play in like it's different if you've already read it. But if you were going to play in, if I was going to play in your Rise of the Rune Lord game, right? Mm -hmm. I've never read. I don't own those products right now. Right. For me to go out and read those knowing I'm going to play that game would, would be kind of shitty. And the same thing with like I'm a player in d and I'm going to just my my lunchtime reading is the monster manual. Well, that's kind of, you know what I mean? It's yeah. I mean, yes and no, depending on how you look at it. Right. But, but, but I definitely get where, where he's coming from there. Totally. I don't think those two things are the same. I don't think reading the module is the same as reading the monster manual. Mm -hmm. I think they're a little different there, but the idea is the same. Yeah. Like don't cheat yourself, you know, like the, the setting book is a different thing. Cause knowing about the setting can help you integrate your character more into the setting. But yeah, man, I hear him for sure. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yep. So, okay. Now let's move on to the, the next yeah, set of calls that I was supposed to play that I thought were about true play okay. that are not. And these are all from Danny Norton of the bandits keep not quite media empire. Hey, Daniel from Mendes Keep calling in. Um, <clears throat> okay, a couple things about Corals. One thing I wasn't clear about, too, is that unlike some games where you're just like, oh, I missed, I'm going to re-roll. If you do pray to the icons, that is something your character is actually doing. So it's not like you just hit because you re-roll. You're shooting again. You're getting that opportunity. You're looking for it. You're trying to pick the lock again. You're doing those things. You're actually making the action. So I just want to make that clear because I think in some games that's not the case, which I think is why I like the Corals version. Um, but what you're asking is, uh, does one person's uh, using it hurt the group? Yeah. And that's actually works into Coriolis really well, because when you sit down to play Coriolis, you create the team and the ship before you create individual characters. The group is actually, in a sense, a PC. And right, they're designed to kind of work together. So I think in Coriolis, that's fine. I think in some other games, it'd be weird to screw over the other person. But yeah, in Coriolis, the group is a, a PC in a so what he's talking about there is the idea that in some of these games with GM meta currency, be it Doom in 2D20 or other, which yes, Arlen, I haven't run that, so I shouldn't use that example. 
but and I'm not making fun of Arlen there. I'm I'm I, I'm it's a it's a legitimate complaint. I shouldn't talk about games that I really don't know what I'm talking about. And that, yeah, that's, yeah. that's totally fair complaint. But but the key is and but my point is in some of these games, you're giving the GM these meta currencies. They get these GM coins and they can spend them to do extra attacks on a player character, do whatever on a player character, right? If Joe's character screws up and the GM uses those points to attack Carl's character, is that fair is kind of the question that he's going with. And any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't know, man. Um, yeah, I, 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 I don't. I don't have many thoughts on that. No, that's fine. That's fair. Um, <laughs> I got to pass super bad. No, go ahead. Take a, We'll take a break. Go, go. It's okay, folks. While he's doing that, because you know it would be effort to edit this, and I'm not going to take effort out. We're 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 getting to the end of the calls. We have we have a couple of neat things to talk about. This next one from Daniel. He's going to talk about timers, and I'm going to go ahead and give you the while well, play his message. Joe's not going to miss anything here because Joe doesn't play ICRPG anyway. So I'm just going to go ahead and go do this. Yeah, and I knew I actually recorded that timer message multiple times because <laughs> I knew that it wasn't going to come out right. What I meant was it serves the same point as putting something on the table that the players can fear. Uh, that Because I was referring to how the darkness points work in Coriolis. Uh, I know that obviously the timer is not something the DM necessarily controls. Although, again, I don't play RCRPG that much. I've played a little bit. Don't you decide when the timer goes on there? Isn't that G- the, up to the GM or does the module tell you to do that? I'd be curious about that. Maybe I should just read the book. But yeah, I mean, don't you say as a DM, okay, I'm putting a timer up and it's D4. Uh, that to me means you have control over it. But as, as noted, that wasn't my point. My point was that um, it's something to put on the table to, to meta kind of introduce fear as opposed to being behind the screen where you know in four rounds the room's going to collapse. The players know with that, which makes it a meta tool, though not the same, obviously. Right. Now, Joe is back. I, I went and played that for them because you're not big in dice RPG and because just to keep the show going because I'm too lazy to edit. But the 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 big thing about timers, Daniel, at least historically in ICRPG, is you're always going to have a timer out. It's mm-hmm. not that the GM decides, well, now's a good time to put a timer out. Pretty much every scene, you put the you're going to roll a ti- You're going to have a timer out there every yeah. scene. Yeah. His, it, you know, and, and so there's always the clock ticking on you in ICRPG. So that's kind of, but but I get your point. And, and yes, timers there to to up the tension because the players know in three rounds, two rounds, one round, something's going to happen. They may not know what's going to happen, but they know something's going to happen. And so that should raise their pucker factor. So now they're in a hurry, to, and now they have to make choices. Do I want to take the time to? pick the lock to get in the chest or do I want to just try to carry the chest out or what I want to do. So it, it kind of creates tension, keeps the game going. That's the idea there. So why you should roll in front of your players. A hundred percent. Yeah, exactly. As opposed to behind the screen. Yep. yep, definitely. Daniel's got one more call going into this Coriolis and, and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. No surprise. I agree with Taylor. I think it's interesting what you're saying now though, about um, changing the narrative. <laughs> Because, again, I have a limited experience with these games, but the ones I've played, and especially Coriolis, where I've run an actual campaign for months, I never looked at the the meta stuff, the, the, the praying to the icons, as changing the narrative. I always looked at it as continuing it, kind of like we were saying before. Essentially, if you miss the shot, you don't just 
pray and somehow the shot hit. It's you shoot again, is basically. So in a sense, it's giving you another action is maybe a better way to think about it. You fail at uh, hacking the computer, you try again, you know. Um, this is basically what you're doing. You're trying again now. Now now you're trying again with with a certain intensity and, and asking the universe to help you. It's not that you just changed that you failed. Now, if the failure resulted in an explosion and you die, then I think I probably wouldn't allow them to re-roll it. Uh, but then maybe that's DM Fiat. <laughs> Okay, so we kind of already touched on this, mm -hmm. but I think he brings up a good point at the end there, that idea that may, the reroll, and I think the other place this is an issue and why we shouldn't just try to import these into old games is that how long a turn or round lasts can matter here. If you're playing a game with one second turns right. or rounds, right. then the idea that oh, I'm going to pick the lock, I'm going to try to pray the gods, pick it again to, to get my reroll. Well, you might not do that in a second. <laughs> you right. know what I mean? Yeah. So, yeah. So it might break the game. But I, th I think we've already talked about the idea that you should that any of these meta mechanics should further the narrative and should be described. Right. And I think game. that's what they're supposed to do. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Now he's going to talk about Power by the Apocalypse games. So. so okay. Um, let's do so, it. so take a seat and um, let's let's hear what he has to say. Played those games before. Okay, so I'm calling in with my limited experience with Powered by the Apocalypse games. And my understanding, or at least the ones I've played, is that there's like a generic set of moves that the GM, we're going to call it GM, can use. And then also specific games have, and I think also specific actions have uh, moves that the, DM, the GM can use. So yes. yeah, they get to choose. I think what makes it a little different in my mind than like these points and stuff is that you use it at the time that the character fails like you don't get to go okay well you screwed up so i'm going to hold on to this later so maybe that's better for lack of a better word if we think about it like you were saying earlier because it would almost always only hurt the person that screwed up although i guess that's not always the case but um it's more likely to hurt the person that screwed up so it's not like you know i screw up and then later the gm uses my screw up against somebody else so that could be that's kind of interesting right it's a little different Though I'm sure somebody with much more experience with that stuff will call in um, and correct what I said there. But again, I, I've read multiple Power by the Apocalypse games, run it once or twice, and been in maybe like four or five. So it's not like I have a huge amount of experience with it. It's not my favorite type of game. It's, it's again, one of those things that um, I talked about on my podcast where it seemed like something. When I looked at the rules, I was like, this is awesome. This is what I want to do. And then once I actually experienced it, I didn't care for it that much. Um, you know, much like long character builds by rolling random things. So anyways, awesome episode so far. Any thoughts on that as I experienced Powered by the Apocalypse MC? He's got to get some jabs in at Cyberpunk whenever he can. That's cool, man. Uh, no, he's, he's, he's right. Like, there are generic, there, there's a list of basic generic moves uh, that the MC can use when a player uh, gets uh, below a seven on a roll. and But they can affect other players. Like one of them is separate them. You know, they have names like that, like separate them, not separate the party or anything. It's just like, okay, so this player fails their roll. They get a six or less. Expect the worst is what it usually says. And then you see the, the prompt of separate them and you come up with a scenario on the fly of how their 
mess up, what happens to go wrong where now, you know, player A is the one who failed the role, but player B is the one who's kidnapped or something like that. You can do that stuff with those games generally. Um, yeah, and it's cool. But like you said before, you got to be you got to be on your toes to run Powered by the Apocalypse for sure. Yeah. Okay. The next set of calls are all from Daniel, and they have to do with tension and the idea of importing these ideas into create tension in your game. Of tension. Uh, so you're talking about uh, like, well, you specifically mentioned tension because you're talking about bringing things in. Can we learn or whatever? And it just came into my mind that uh, people often quote Gygax. I think he wrote it in a forum post at one point. And of course, I'm sure it's part of a larger thing he wrote, but that he sometimes just rolls the dice behind the screen to make the players nervous. So maybe Gygax played Powered by the Apocalypse. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think those things do exist in games. And I think um, that the all the narrative games are doing is looking at things that have happened before and putting them into into a mechanical way, kind of putting it out there as mechanics as opposed to just letting the GM do it, right? Don't you, as a GM in like a OSR game, say things like, oh, are you sure you want, want to go in that? Are you, are you sure you want to do that? Right, that's a classic, right? Or like, who's holding the torch? Uh, what's your marching order? Well, mm-hmm. you smell something funny, right? These are all things that we've always done, but there's no mechanical rule for it. There's no tension building. There's no, I forget what they call it in Powered by the Apocalypse, where it's like stages that build up to the action. But we still do it, right? So I wonder, and now I'm forgetting because all the calls are mixed up in my head because I didn't call in in the middle like I usually do. Um, somebody mentioned that uh, a lot of these games are kind of like best practices like jammed into mechanics. And I think that's absolutely right. I think the idea is that if you are a experienced, we'll say not every experienced DM, but let's say you're a good experienced DM. Uh, we're talking Dungeons & Dragons here, basically Dungeons & Dragons, whatever. You do all these things. You do it because you understand that makes the game fun. That makes it good. But if you don't have the experience or you don't have the, I don't want to say you don't have the creativity because I want to say like I'm talking down to people, but you know, you just don't have the, the mind that puts you in that space. Having these mechanical rules to kind of put it into the game can be really good. Things like tension, whether or not, you know, uh, re-rolling and that kind of stuff is good or bad or something that, that you would add to an OSR game, not whether or not they're good or bad in their own games. That's a really good question. And I think that some people would like the idea of re-rolling, right? Especially in OSR games that are, you know, quote, more deadly. But I wonder, though, if that doesn't set you up for a certain style of play that doesn't match. This kind of goes back to what Taylor was saying. doesn't match what is the, let's say, the intended style of play. Again, you can play any game any way you want. You can pick up OD&D and play it like Pathfinder or 5th Edition or whatever. That's cool, you know. There's nothing wrong with that. And I mean, ultimately it became that, right? <laughs> but if you look at what was probably the intention of the game, if you're interested in that part of it, that kind of history of it, or however you want to say it, then I think you want to kind of try to play the game the way with the vibe it was meant to play with, be played with. And I think that um, adding these like re-rolls and stuff to these old school games don't really work unless you make it some kind of a resource that they find, that they earn, right? Maybe they get some kind of a ring that allows them so you find some kind of a ring that allows them, uh, you know, and again, you make it work with the narrative. It allows them to skip back in time 10 seconds, but it only works three times. And maybe even make them make some kind of a role to, to activate it fast enough when they realize they screwed up, right? And now you're kind of creating that re-roll, right? With a, but you're doing it narratively in the game with, a, with an object. And I think that fits the OSR 
style in my mind better than just saying, hey, you have X number of points of luck per day. I mean, even in DCC where you um, where you actually burn luck and your character gets less and less lucky as they progress, that even though it's very much a modern, in my mind, mechanic, that, that they've kind of uh, disguised it <laughs> with an OSR covering, right, to make it feel more right in that, uh, that kind of world. So I think it's interesting to mix the two styles, but I do agree that some games fit very firmly in one or the other, and maybe that's fine. In fact, for sure, that's fine. And I agree with that in the idea that some games are one thing and some games are others, right? So, like, to me, like a Pathfinder, is Pathfinder 1 is a pretty much a and, and I'm I'm going to use terms and I don't mean to offend anybody. No, it's more of a simulationist kind of thing where when you're doing combat, you've got rules. You don't bend the rules. You don't change the rules. You don't use GM fiat. You have everybody's got these mechanical rules. If you're within this distance of this creature, this tr- effect mm-hmm. triggers and mm-hmm. the GM doesn't just say, oh, well, no, I'm not going to trigger reach or i'm not going to trigger whatever because i don't want to no it's going to trigger right like when we were playing in your game and we were fighting the swarm like you didn't want to kill jules's friggin that's the last thing you want but but you were but you're an impartial it so Mm -hmm. in a game like that a more simulationist game which you can definitely role play and you can definitely do all the cool stuff in those kind of games but yeah we did but in those games it's much more of a the rules are what they are well, I shouldn't say it that way, but you know what I'm saying, as opposed to a more narratives game with meta mechanics and re-rolls and all the stuff, they're much more, you can edit the narrative and change the narrative and, yep. and forward the narrative by doing different things and importing a lot of those kind of mechanics into say Pathfinder one would, would totally alter. I, I won't say it break the game, but it would totally alter the way it plays. The feel of the ga- game would be different. The tension wouldn't be, if you knew you had, two re-rolls i mean yeah you might fail both those re-rolls but if you knew you had these re-rolls and could redo all the stuff it it would be a different feel to the game you know and that's why they ended up coming out with pathfinder second edition because they tried to work hero points into pathfinder first edition and it was weird it's weird i don't use them when i run pathfinder first edition i don't use the hero point mechanic it's in the game they added it in the game but i don't use it but it's in pathfinder second edition and i use it there right so so i think daniel has some good points there mm-hmm. absolutely ideas. absolutely he's a sharp dude now this last one i'm i'm really interested to get your opinion on he he has one final call to it's going to wrap up all this okay and then we're going to move on to the idea of getting in an inhuman mindset, alien mindset, how to play a dwarf as a dwarf. But Daniel has a wrap-up call here. Okay, so I'm listening to John's call-in now, and because I haven't broken into the middle of a call-in before they finish and called in yet this episode, I decided to do it. Um, (laughs) Not necessarily, well, he did say something, but other people have put this uh, forward, so I'm curious uh, what people think is, I, I keep hearing it's good for new players or new groups. Okay, well, that's cool. So let's just say that you think that's the case. I don't, but let's just say that you think that it's this case. When do you stop using it, right? If I came into the game with metacurrency as part of the game that I learned because I'm a new player, when do you just, what happens when you just suddenly take it away and, and there is no metacurrency and, you've, and you don't have that anymore? Like, how do you do that? I almost think adding it to the game after somebody understands the basics of the game is way better than giving it to new players. I think if I learned with that, I would never want to play a game without it because it's kind of a cushion, right? It's a safety net. 
where you lose that when you no longer have it and you've got just straight up play. I, I think that's an interesting point that he brings up there. I don't know if it's valid or not, but it's interesting. Sure. Yeah. Is that what John was saying? Introduce it and then take it away. I, I'd have to go back and replay John's call. But, yeah. But the, but the key with Daniel saying is he doesn't think medic. He thinks players are better off learning without meta currency and adding meta currency later because if they're used to being able to do re-rolls and, and be able to say, I'm going to spend a point and I know this guy, or I'm going to spend a point and there's a, a secret door here because I spent a yeah. point. He right. thinks that players learn that way. It's harder mm-hmm. for them to go cold turkey back where you don't have those options. Yeah, I, I, I could agree with that. There you go, Daniel. Joe agreed with you. Make I agree go. with you a lot, Daniel. <laughs> Don't listen to what Jason or I have to say about that. <laughs> well, so the next topic is something that we that kind of spun out of your podcast. And this is in your call to me mm-hmm. about playing. I, I, I talked about how a lot of people play an elf as a human with pointy ears. Mm-hmm. And if we're playing an elf, we should try to play them in the mindset of an elf. And you're like, well, you don't know what an elf's mindset is. How do you do that? You, you didn't say don't try to do it. Thank you. I did, you, you not. did not say that, right. but, but you said, you know, it, it's hard yep. and, and I acknowledge that. And, mm-hmm. and Daniel, we don't have any calls from Daniel here, but he did his whole, uh, a whole episode about this. A great episode about he it. He did a great episode. Yep. And I, I want to point out here that BJ, so callers here are BJ from the Arcane Alienist yeah. and Evil Jeff from Minions and Musings. Fun. BJ, so Daniel put out an episode called How Do We Play Various Species? Mm-hmm. And I'll I'll post the link in the show notes. But some of the ideas that Daniel said in his episode and BJ says are really similar. BJ called these calls into me before Daniel's episode was published. So these aren't, this isn't BJ copied Daniel's ideas. Nice, dude. Okay, I, I just want to clarify that because yep. I don't want people to think BJ heard Daniel's episode and called. Absolutely, me. I love it, dude. Set the precedent. Dude. Yeah, BJ definitely came up with these ideas on his own, so I, mm-hmm. I, I do want to clarify that. So I've got friggin' seven message, messages from BJ and two from <laughs> Evil Jeff. So I'm going to play these, and Joe's going to raise his hand like a little fifth grader if he wants to comment, and um, we're, we're just going to go through this. I love fifth grade. <laughs> Hey, Jason, it's BJ. Uh, I was going to comment on, on Joe's question about how do you play a non-human who, who should have a completely <clears throat> kind of alien mind compared to us? I mean, how, how do you get into the mind of, of, of basically an alien when, by definition, it's alien? It, it's it's <laughs> completely foreign and, and, and mysterious to us. Yeah, I think that's... You know, in a sci-fi game, that's a, maybe a really difficult question to answer. But in a fantasy game, I mean, most of the the other types of creatures you would play that aren't human in D&D or similar games are based on folklore. They're not people. They're, they're, they're based on types of spirits and supernatural beings that are found in, in mythology and folklore. And even though D&D turns a lot of them into mortal or, or basically mortal beings instead of, of spirits that are affiliated with a certain element or a certain type of environment or things like that, um, 
if you if you think about the way elves and dwarves and and such are portrayed in folklore, they're still kind of human like, but they're just a little kind of one dimensional compared to, to to people. They're very stuck on a certain culture or a certain role or a certain niche they they play in the the spiritual realm or, or the cosmology or the natural order of things. How, however, you know those cultures that invent these creatures come up with, and so I think the key really playing demi-humans in D&D is to play them as kind of, I mean, this sounds may sounds kind of boring, but, but a little less fleshed out, a little more one-dimensional. A, a little more one-dimensional than, than a human yeah. character would be. They, they, they're, they're not as diverse or as flexible or as uh, adaptable uh, as, as humans are. Um, and that, that's a, that, that sounds maybe on the on surface, it may sound kind of boring. It means well, you kind of pigeonhole me as, as a non-human. On the other hand, it can be a challenge to sort of stick with that character's <laughs> kind of almost an immutable quality of them that the, the, the human doesn't have, and try to find a way to to play that in in, in a compelling way as as a player and as humans or a non-human of a different species. When a person hits a wall, how how do their friends and allies who, who don't have those kind of limitations help you know add a different perspective so that the group can overcome a challenge and and the party can can face what they need to do drawing on their different strengths and weaknesses to do that i think that's part of the way to do it yep so you kind of have to look at the setting you're playing in because you know dwarves and elves and halflings and 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 such may not be the same in every setting so you so you want to look at the lore of the setting and probably as a player work with the dm to uh, to figure out well, what niche or what role or what 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 are those things those parameters the space that this uh, this non human race or species takes up in the campaign setting and, and play to that um so I I think you know that that's probably one way to go about it. the other thing to do is and I know you, you've you've talked a lot <laughs> quite a bit in the last few episodes about um metacurrency that come from more narrative games. And if you want to pull in a metacurrency, depending on what game you're playing and if your group is open to that and, and it works for you guys, that might be one way you use a metacurrency as a, as a game master or a DM is to, to reward. Uh, I know sometimes they get used in genre games. You know, metacurrencies are used as a way to reward genre play that if we're playing a, you know, in a certain type of, Genre, sword and sorcery, high fantasy, more detective, cyberpunk, whatever it might be. When you make choices that are consistent with characters typical of that genre, uh, you can get a meta currency, whether that's a you know whatever the it is in the type of game you're playing, and that might be a way to to help players remember to role play their non humans as non human. Is you you establish those qualities that they have this is what makes you a dwarf this is what makes you an elf and when you do a good job of that well then you get an inspiration point or a benny or whatever whatever it might be just to reinforce that you're sticking with the tropes of that oops i got cut off so it's just to say that that would reinforce for someone playing a non-human for sticking with the tropes specific to that species they're playing uh, in the setting Anyway, sorry to blow you up with such a long series of calls, but um, it was a great episode. Um, I like the new format, so keep it up, and I'll see you later. 
Ah, and as an afterthought, I guess one alternative to using meta currency for that would just be to award bonus XP. Um, you know, some people are okay with that. Some people feel it's kind of, <laughs> you know, the awarding bonus XP for role-playing sometimes becomes like who can entertain and amuse the GM the best. And so not everybody is real okay with that situation because the extroverts and the natural actors and hams in the group tend to get more experience that way. So you got to be judicious, but that, that would be, I guess, the most fundamental old school way of doing it is, yeah, I'm just going to give you a, a little bit of extra bonus XP right now because you, you did a good job of sticking to the, to your character archetype. So I think BJ has some interesting ideas there. He has good advice on role-playing them. I think in a game like Savage Worlds, you know, you throw them a Benny or two. I think that makes sense. I hate that word. Yep. Extra XP in a game that without meta currency. How do you feel about that? I I think it's tricky. I think if you're going to do that, you need to just have a, you need to have a set rule in your game. And this is something you talk about in session zero, right? You say, listen, if you play up your character and you're, Mm -hmm. and, you know, we feel you're playing a character, then I'll give you a 5% XP bonus, 10% XP bonus for that session. But I think the problem is now it can be arbitrary. Sure. So, and, and I, and it, and like he says, it could affect introverts and all. Yeah. One yep. thing that I think Arlen is one thing Arlen's done that I think is really cool. We're playing astonishing swordsman source Hyboria, which is a OSR game. Mm-hmm. And in that game, whoever wants to write up the session recap after the game, and it doesn't have to be a book. It could be a few sentences, but he said, you know, and we rotate it, but he says, you know, if you want to write up a session recap, I'll give you 10% extra experience next session. Right. And that's a little different than what BJ is talking about. But the thing about that is it's allowed to rotate between all the players. And if somebody doesn't want to write it, that's fine. You know, you're not forced to, but there's an incentive to doing it. I'm okay with XP using incentives like that, especially because it's, it's, available to everybody it rotates i i think xp for playing character could work but i think what it's going to end up do what probably would end up being is everybody gets that xp every session because you're not going to want to say oh joe you didn't do you didn't play your you didn't do anything to play your character this session so you don't get 10 percent, but everybody else does that's a sucky thing to say to your friend yeah, exactly. So I think it's, it's tricky from that point of view. It's tricky. It's tricky, but you can do it, man. It, it can encourage the shy players a little bit, maybe. I don't know. I, I think it's easier in a game like Savage Worlds where you give them a Benny. You give than, them a than, thing. You give them a thing. Yeah, right? I think that's easier yeah. than doing yeah. the XP bonus. Because the XP bonus, if you have four players and three get an XP bonus that session and one doesn't, you're going to have butt hurt going on there. You're going to have people that, that, that are going to get bad feelings especially yeah. if, you, you know and where with the benny point yeah if i if throughout the game and carl's running deadlands and throughout that game you get three bennies and i get two bennies i i'm not going to care about that you know what i mean sure. but yeah. that much so i i don't think it's as in your face is at the end of the session you're like oh so i don't get a reward no you didn't do good enough to get one you i've know, never i've never been able to do that i've never that feels so bad to me, man. Yeah. I've never yeah. been able to do that. Where like you two get the experience point bonus for good role playing, you two don't. Like step your game up, fucker. Like I, yeah, that's just it's tough. I, I'd be interested if anybody does do that on a regular basis. Please call in and talk yes. about that. 
I would love to hear. And it's not that I I disagree with the concept as much as I think the putting it into practice is hard. Yeah, the concept because, is good. Yeah, but but I, I think it's I, I think you will alienate people pretty quickly if you're not careful. So yeah. yeah. Now now our buddy Evil Jeff over at Minions and Musings, who is as OSR as they come. When you talk about grognards, you know, Evil Jeff's pictures there in the book, in the dictionary. And um and he has some ideas on this. Nice. Jason's Evil Jeff. Listening to the recent call-in show, 257, something like that, Taylor Gibbon D. And Joe calls in talking about the mindset of human, uh, excuse me, demi-humans and so forth. And how do you really know? And I would counter with, how do we know anybody's mindset? It's all conjecture no matter what. Yes, it might be human, you know, thinking about some other human. But, and again, it is somebody's perception of that mindset. So what we would have to do to think about demi-humans is to put it into the terms that we understand, and then we can play it within a reasonable amount of, or a reasonable facsimile thereof. Yep. I mean, if you really look at the whole thing with elves and dwarves and things like that, it's all stuff that was written down by humans in the first place. We don't have any elves or dwarves writing things down for us, telling anything about themselves, since it's all made up or based off of lore from you know mythological times. So how can we truly know anything? It's all just conjecture. So we have to make that conjecture. And for anybody to represent a demi-human, you know, we've got to create the paradigm for them to inhabit so they can try to emulate it. You know, it's, it's a mute art. It's a moot point anyway, if you really want to get down to it. Ooh. Mm, strong words from Evil Jeff. No, that's my exact point. That's yeah. my whole point, man. He made my point for me. Like, there's the idea of playing them as humans with pointy ears there's nothing wrong with that like we are going to play them as humocentric characters because that's what we know and we're just going to change them a little bit that's 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 what i'm saying yeah jeff's 100 i don't know what he meant why it was a moot point at the end there but the rest of what he said was that's exactly what i was saying well why well, thank you i i don't i don't want to put words in his mouth maybe he'll call back but I think what he's saying is a mute point because it's not possible to do it. Like right. We played like it's it's like if you're playing anapomorphic animals. Sure. And and, and that's anapomorphic, not anapornmorphic. <laughs> um, but but if we're if you're playing a dog in the world, right? Yeah. Like like we can't ever really play a dog, right? I mean, right. you you know, I mean, dogs. We yes. we've been around dogs. We know dogs are. You know, they're intelligent. They react to their surroundings. They right. think. They they dream. They they have nightmares. We we know this. We know they have personalities. But to actually act like a dog, I mean, mm -hmm. yeah, you can ham it up, but you're you're not going to really be able to inhabit the mind of a dog, right? It's it's just not possible. That's you just have point. to do the best you can. Yeah. So but, why complain about it? Well, I'm not complaining about it. What I'm saying is, I think some people do things like what Daniel and BJ have said 
to try to inhabit those and play them a little bit different. Yeah. And some people just play them. They, they just play them like humans and they don't try to do anything different with them, which is so depending on the game is perfectly fine. I'm not saying it's not valid, but, but at that point, effectively they're playing an elf because they get like in an OSR game, an elf gets to do things a human doesn't. Right. So right. you're playing the elf because you want the bonuses, not because yeah. you want to play an elf, right. You're playing right. for mechanical reasons, not, other reasons not like what's the right way to play an elf that's my question well it's going to depend on the world because exactly. elves can vary yeah. greatly right. right 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 but but i think if you're going to play one it, well, i think it depends on the game let me put it that way if if you're depending on the game it might not matter maybe there are just humans pointy ears but in a game where elves like like say you're playing in tolkien's world yeah th- then i elves think you need, to, you, you need yeah. to try you know things like what joe talked about the idea that the elf just wants to stop in the field of flowers and sit there for, or Daniel said, you just stop in the field of flowers and sit there for a couple hours. Cause he that was brilliant. I forget who said that, but that was a brilliant, like it changes your whole mindset, but like, who's just, I, I don't know. That's the, that's a tough call. It, it is a tough call, but um, I, I would appreciate a player that it's not that I don't appreciate the wrong word. I, I would definitely re- respect him and enjoy when a player did that. And I, I would let a player riff off that. Absolutely. Game. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Yeah, definitely. Great. But, but, but yeah, it's definitely tough to do. I've got one last call here. Final call. This is from Spencer. And, and then I'll respond to this. This isn't so much for you. Um, I mean, you can obviously. Shut up. <laughs> I'll shut up. Yeah. Um, Jason. Yeah. I also, wanted to add that um, I'm you know I'm really sorry to hear about the situation at home with the dogs you know the dogs being ill and you know if that uh, disease is as dangerous as you say I you know I just hope that uh, everything goes as well as it can for them and yourselves who are also having to uh, to be tested um, uh, you also alluded to some other bad news and um yeah i just i just wish you all the best going forward and things pan out um as best they can for all concerned take care man bye that's why i love spencer yeah and and spencer i really appreciate the thoughts i tend to separate gaming from personal and i mean my buddies like like i talked to joe here he, he knows a lot about stuff going on here at the house, but I don't tend to put it on discord or put it, you know, on the show that much. And I tend to separate, you know, work from play from home. Right. I tend to separate the three to a large degree. Um, but yeah, the, the dogs are doing okay. They, uh, we, they, there's the thought they might have been exposed to um, uh, leptospirosis, but lepto, but, but we don't know for sure. We're treating, we're treating them. They're, they're doing okay. Um, Gadget was having some problems with the treatment, she, the doxycycline. She, cause she has booby tummy. She was having, yeah, she wasn't, she's got a sensitive stomach, but it, it's, it's being sorted out. We've had a bunch of other things happen this week, personal stuff that have caused us some stress, but, it, but it's all good. Um, but, but I definitely appreciate thought Spencer. Thank you very much. Um, and yeah. But I, I also, when I say thank you, I want to thank everybody that's called into this episode. That all these calls make the episode better. I really appreciate it. There are links to everybody that has a podcast 
There are links to those podcasts in the show notes, even the, the presentation, the GM podcast by Carl. So go check all those out. I want to, and I want to thank Joe for joining me in, in, in going through my mailbag here. Thank you, Joe. That was fun. Thanks for having me. Sorry to talk so much. No, dude. I, I you know, that, that was the, it was great. Um, so yeah, I, well, I guess I've got you here. So it doesn't matter. We'll, we'll do the ending here. Um, I want to thank Ray Otis for the art. I want to thank TJ Drainon for the beautiful music, the opening, the ending, and then the, the mailbag song there. TJ is a great guy. Um, hopefully at some point things are going to, he's got a busy life right now. A lot of stuff going on. Hopefully when things slow down, we'll get back to that um, game. We were playing the um, copy of advanced fighting fantasy. What's Oh, um, Troika. That's it. Yeah. Troika. Um, But yeah, hopefully we'll get back to that at some point, but uh, yeah, thank everybody. If you have any comments, you want to comment on anything on the show today, leave me a message on anchor. Reach out to me on Discord. Send an email at nerdsrpgvarietycast.gmail.com. You, you know, and don't forget to enter an entry into the October initiative. That's right. You've got till the 20th of October, the full moon, to send me an entry. Let me know what your favorite initiative system is in a tabletop game, your least favorite initiative is for a tabletop game, you know, and why or what your favorite part of initiative and least favorite part of initiative is, but call them in and I will put your name in the hat. We're going to randomly draw a winner. That winner gets a $20 drive through RPG gift certificate, good anywhere in the world. And I'll donate $25 to your favorite charity. And if you don't have fair favorite charity, I've got a favorite charity. So I'll donate to mine, but seriously, I'll, I'll happily donate to your favorite charity. So there's no negative easiest contest ever. Cause everybody's got an opinion on initiative. So call it in and I'll play your voice in the air, make you famous, or just send me a message and I'll read your message out loud. Joe, do you have anything you want to plug or anything you want to say here at the end of the show? Hell no. Listen to a bunch of different podcasts. You guys are all awesome. Yeah, man. Jason rules. Cool. Okay. Well, everybody, my next show will be on Wednesday. Take care. And I will talk to you later. Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Who's on the phone? Maybe it's your auntie or a joke by your spouse, but the operator's screaming it's coming from inside the house. What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? What's in the box? Well, the audience is pretty sure he took a pretty head and Question left is if I fail to shoot him dead. Bring on the gold, bring on the gold. I want some more, bring on the gold. Well, your butcher is a dustman and your moil is quite a tipper, and I'm assuming that your partner back there in the wood chipper. Don't look away.